in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. It's one of the passages that you will be reading coming up this week. Jesus asks this crucial question. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's not an exaggeration to say that answering that question correctly and embracing that truth deeply is the most important thing that any human being can ever do. Did you hear that? Let me say that again. When Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? It's not an exaggeration to say that answering that question correctly and then embracing that truth deeply is the most important thing any human being can do. But, but think with me about how Mark has already begun to answer that question in the opening chapters of his gospel. Think about what you were reading last week, those who were reading with us last week. His gospel starts with the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Mark chapter 1, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Northern Ireland, in the region called Galilee. We read that not only had been had Jesus been attracting crowds to him, but right from the get-go, Jesus was calling certain people to follow him. Remember reading about that? These men, 12 of these men, were eventually in chapter 3 appointed as apostles, right? Those who were sent, those duly authorized as representatives of the one sending them. These men have been following Jesus for a little while now, haven't they? Uh, How long, we don't quite know. But we know that they've already experienced quite a bit. We know that from the first five chapters of the gospel. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him drive out evil spirits. They've seen him confront the bigwigs, the religious leaders of the day. They've heard him preach and teach. They've even received special instruction in private about his teaching, about his parables. But let's think carefully about what they learn, what they experience in our passage, our study passages this morning. So turn, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 35. That's our starting point this morning, verse 35. This morning, Mark is going to describe for us Two storms, two storms, two storms that reveal even more about Jesus than we've already discovered. Let's look at that first storm in verses 35 through 41. We read that on that day when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. Other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. <laughs> and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? 
And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Wow. So when Jesus in verse five, sorry, when Jesus says, let's go cross to the other side there in verse 35, we know from chapter five that he's talking about sailing from the northwest shore of the, the lake, uh, sorry, the Sea of Galilee. He's going from Capernaum down to the southeast shore. Now, the first storm, remember I said we're going to see two storms in these passages this morning, what we're looking at this morning. The first storm this morning is obvious, isn't it? It's right here. We just heard about it. Verse 37. Now, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, is surrounded by high hills and narrow valleys. And because of the the kind of uh, geology of it, right, the geography of that area, there is a kind of wind tunnel effect that makes storms like this, or at least storms in general, fairly common on the lake. So keeping that in mind, we should remember that many of the disciples who are here in the boat experiencing this are experienced fishermen, aren't they? They're experienced fishermen. So they were familiar with these storms. This would have not been, the idea of having a storm would not have been something that uh, was new to them. But look at their reaction. Did you hear? Their reaction, from their reaction alone, we know this was a particularly bad storm. (laughs) These seasoned fishermen are not just writing this out like, it's all good, you know, we're going to get through this okay. Oh, back in... uh, you know, back in 17, wow, we went, we went through something way worse than this. No, these guys are scared. They're terrified. We can, we could tell from reading. So we know this was a very bad storm. So bad that we read at the end of verse 37 that water was already starting to fill the boat. You can imagine the waves crashing into the boat. So these tough, experienced fishermen were afraid that they were going to die. Can you imagine just the chaos? Just try to picture the scene for a moment. Can you imagine the chaos? Not only do you have the waves crashing and the wind howling, maybe the thunder cracking, you know, lightning cracking, the thunder rumbling above you, but you've got these guys yelling, trying to bail water out of the boat, trying to bring down the sail, just trying to hold on for dear life. And where is Jesus in the midst of all this chaos? He's sleeping. (laughs) Good job, Jesus. He's sleeping. He's sleeping. In the back of the boat, he's asleep. Now, he had been teaching all day, so he was probably exhausted. So he went back there and crashed out. So what were his disciples thinking once they see what's going on? Verse 38, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? How can you be sleeping at a time like this? We're dying. 
Very dramatic. But what do we see here? Of course, we know Jesus does care, doesn't he? What does he do as soon as he gets up? He takes action. Does he start by helping to bail water out of the boat? No. Does he give them a pep talk on nautical safety and emergency procedures? No, he does not do that. He simply speaks peace, be still, and all creation responds. Immediately, the wind stops and the water calms. Now, even if a storm passes, this stuff doesn't happen immediately like that. If you've ever been anywhere near water or on the ocean when there's a storm, no, this is, this is something stunning that, of course, these men had never seen. Uh, now, if you thought these guys were afraid in the midst of the storm, just look at them in verse 41. Upon seeing this incredible display of power, something they had never seen before, this in display of authority from Jesus, we read that they were filled with great fear. They don't know what to make of this. Even though they had been with Jesus now for long enough to see many, many miracles take place, this takes the cake. Something different has happened here. They are simply awestruck, aren't they? The foundations of everything they thought they knew, the control they thought they possessed, their grasp on the world, all of this has in a moment been pulled out from under them. But according to Jesus' question there in verse 40, this power should not come as a surprise to them. If Jesus said... If they had seen what Jesus was doing and been listening to what Jesus was saying and Jesus said to them, let's go to the other side, then they should have known they were going to the other side. That should not have been in doubt. They were going to the other side with Jesus in the boat. Now, while you and I might never experience a storm like this, in a boat, like this. (laughs) And I hope you don't. Can't we experience circumstances in our lives that drive us, like these men, to places of intense worry, of paralyzing fear, of feeling so overwhelmed by circumstances like these? Can't we find ourselves in places like that? Like these disciples, we too can be tempted to doubt. God, don't you care that I am perishing? And we might not vocalize those exact words, but we feel them. Right? They cry out in our heart, where are you, God? Like the psalmist, we say, how long, O Lord? How long will you hear and not act? Have you ever found yourself in a place like that? I think all of us, if we're honest, have. Keep that in mind. For Jesus and his disciples, though they've experienced the calm that Jesus has amazingly brought about with just a word, 
for Jesus and his disciples, there's another storm on the horizon. Look with me at verses 1 through 20 of chapter 5. 1 through 20 of chapter 5. The story continues. Don't let those chapters throw you off, okay? Those are not in the original Bible. (laughs) Those were done like a plus a thousand years after the New Testament was written. So this is just flowing, right, in, in the original Gospel of Mark. It's just flowing from one story to the next. We read this, verse 1, chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes, Gerasa. This is a, a, a Gentile region, mainly a Gentile region. You'll see some of the telltale signs of that in the, in the story coming up. So they, they went from to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, this man. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue this man. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was saying to this man, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Uh, Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. We know it's a Gentile area, right? They're, They're raising pigs there, which Jews would not do. And they begged him, saying, send us this legion of evil spirits to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told this in the city and in the country and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was going into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And this man, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. The Decapolis means 10 cities how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. 
Obviously, there are many things that we could talk about here, right? Some interesting things about demonic possession and all sorts of questions might pop up in your mind there. But I don't want you to miss, first of all, how much ink Mark has spent on describing just how tormented this man was. Did you see it in verses 3 through 5? Look again. Verse 3, the man's exiled. He's cut off from community. He's cut off from others. Verse 4, when people do come, what are they doing? They're trying to shackle him. They're trying to bind him. They're trying to chain him up. Verse 5, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. We don't quite understand why he was doing this, but you know, without having to understand the details, this man was tortured. He was tormented. He was in agony, wasn't he? I'm not sure any of us can understand the suffering this man was experiencing. Even many of us who have experienced a lot of suffering in our lives. This seems so unique, painfully unique. This man was suffering physically. He was suffering mentally. He was suffering spiritually. He was suffering relationally. He was suffering in exile, wasn't he? Now, there's something else that gives us a sense here about how tormented this man was. There's something else that gives us a sense of this man's predicament. Notice how the demon, when he's speaking to Jesus, identifies himself as legion. Legion. Why legion? Because as the demon explains, we are many. There was not just one evil spirit. There were many evil spirits inside of this man. And not only is this man suffering under the power of an evil spirit, but evil spirits who are harboring other evil spirits, so many spirits that they choose this word to describe themselves, this term legion, which we know was a Roman army unit of 6,000 men. And of course, when they were cast out, how many pigs were driven into the sea? 2,000. So whatever these numbers mean, we know this is a huge amount of evil spirits who have taken up somehow residence in this man. And when we know that, we begin to make sense of why he was so tormented. The second storm is clear, isn't it? The second storm is not one that is raging around the man. It is one that is raging inside of the man. A storm of intense suffering. Like the disciples who in the last passage were being pummeled by the turbulent waters of the lake. This man is being pummeled in his spirit night and day by the raging of evil. Can you even begin to imagine what this was like? But just like the waters of the lake this man finds peace because of Jesus, doesn't he? He experiences calm because of Jesus. 
When he sees Jesus, he is irresistibly drawn to him. Then he is driven to his knees. This wild man that no one could tame, not even with chains, is now kneeling before Jesus Christ. Why does he bow before Jesus? Because as he testifies in verse 7, as the demons must testify, Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. Is this the first time that we've heard a demon acknowledge the identity of Jesus? No, if you were reading in Mark, you already know that Jesus that the demons knew who Jesus was. They already talked about, you know, are you coming to torment us, Holy One of God? I think that's Mark chapter 1. But we see amazingly even this legion of evil spirits, even this storm is no match for Jesus. The man is wonderfully liberated. And when the locals show up, notice their reaction. They see this man who was possessed, a man who was certainly well-known and well-feared in the area. They see him sitting calmly next to Jesus, dressed. I'm guessing the disciples had stuff with them, a change of garments or whatever. They gave this man what he needed. These people come, they see him, and they react exactly the same way as the disciples did when Jesus calmed the storm. They are afraid. They are afraid. They're not afraid because they're afraid of the man like they once were. No, they are afraid because of what the man has become. You see, this exorcism has shaken the foundations of everything they thought they knew. The control they thought they possessed. Their grasp on the world. All of this has, in a moment, been pulled out from under them. Now, as we think about these two stories, as we think about these two storms this morning, I suspect oftentimes our first reaction is to conclude that Mark's point, that God's point is to comfort me, to comfort you, to comfort us with this truth that Jesus is the storm breaker. That he is the storm breaker. That Jesus Christ can break the grip of, the power of, the challenges, the trials, the suffering that we experience on the inside and the circumstances that can shake us from the outside. Is that the main point? I don't think so. I don't think so. We are right to go there. We are right to go to that place but I do not think that is Mark's first intention. I think Mark's intention, first of all, is not first reassurance, but revelation. Not reassurance, but revelation. Or to use fancier words, he's not first concerned with the therapeutic, but the theophanic. Ooh, wow, that's a $25 word, isn't it? Right? Not the therapeutic, but the theophanic. What does that weird word mean? Theophanic or theophonic. Well, a theophany is what? A theophany, take a look. A theophany is an appearance of God to men. 
God appearing. You can probably think of stories from the Old Testament where God appeared to like Abraham, for example. That's called a theophany. If we believe it's an, uh, a revelation of God the Son in the Old Testament, we call it a Christophany. Right? Same, same idea. Theophany, Christophany. So this is not therapeutic. It is first theophanic. It's first a theophany. Mark is driving us to ask, as we read this passage, these passages, he is driving us to ask, along with the disciples, in chapter 4, verse 41, who then is this? Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? That is the first matter. That's what needs to be decided. That's what needs to be sorted out. Before we begin to think about ourselves, we have to ask, who is this? Mark is driving us to the confession made by, interestingly, an evil spirit in our passage this morning. He's driving us to the same confession that Jesus is, chapter 5, verse 7, the Son of the Most High God. Who alone has authority over both nature and the forces of evil? God. And only God. Who is Jesus? He is God in human flesh. If there is any hope to be found here this morning, if you came looking for hope this morning, if there is any hope to be found here this morning, it will be founded on the unshakable reality of Jesus' deity. You see, we don't begin with the confession that Jesus is powerful enough to help us. We begin with the confession that Jesus is powerful. Full stop. This book is not first about us. It is first about God. It reveals him to us. We are the ones who have a way of making everything about us. But Mark wants us to see. He wants us to understand. He wants us to recognize. He reveals with such power that this is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary man. So Mark is trying to show us this morning that before calm can be brought to our fears, to the fear that we experience from our storms, the way that these circumstances outside of us that shake us, the, the, the struggle on the inside that torments us, all of these things. He wants us to see that before we can find that calm and experience that peace in light of our fears and our storms, we must first experience another kind of fear. It is that fear the disciples experienced after they had been rescued and the waters were still. It was that fear that townspeople had in spite of the demoniac's sanity in spite of his newfound position clothed at the feet of Jesus. It is a fear that comes when we stand in the presence of a holy God. Human beings, 
mortal standing before the eternal God, creature before creator. Does fearing God mean being scared of God? It can. It can. For the sinner who faces only judgment, how could it not mean that? For the one who's not assured that his sins are covered, how could it not mean that? But it can also mean an unsettling awe as creature stands before creator. Being overwhelmed by the majesty of God. Being overwhelmed by the grace of God. By the power of God. The awe that we experience when we realize that we are not so big. That we are not so smart. That we are not so righteous. That we are not so powerful. That we are not in control. That is awe in light of the greatness of God. Which of us would not be in that position if we were the ones in the boat, chapter 4? If we had witnessed this exorcism in chapter 5? It would shake us, and that would be a good thing, brothers and sisters, friends. That would be a good thing. Has God given you eyes of faith this morning, eyes to see the greatness of Jesus? His power, His authority. It's not common, unfortunately, in the church. If you were to visit churches this morning where they would talk, be talking to you about Jesus and wanting you to fear Jesus. Love would be out there, being in the mix, being talked about, right? Celebrated, praise, and all wonderful things that we want to emphasize here as well. But where has the fear gone? Where has the reverence gone? Where has the awe gone in light of the incomparable nature of God the Son in human flesh, Jesus Christ? And aren't we guilty of putting Jesus in a box? Aren't we guilty of gilding Him, putting Him on our coffee mug? Aren't we guilty of making Him a bumper sticker? Aren't we guilty of bringing Him down and putting Him in our cultural constraints and saying, This is my Jesus. No, this is Jesus, the one who speaks and all heaven and earth obeys. The one who speaks and the forces of evil tremble. They must come out of this man. Thousands upon thousands of demons must hear and heed his voice because he is their Lord. They will not bow before him with love and faithfulness and obedience. But they must confess who He is because it is the truth. You see, Mark wants us to answer that question. Who do you say that I am? He wants us to answer it correctly. And He wants us to embrace it deeply, the truth that He is laying out here. He is not going to soft sell Jesus to us. He's not going to water Jesus down for us. He, as the inspired writer, the Holy Spirit giving Him utterance, is revealing Jesus in power to us. In compassion and mercy, absolutely, yes. But also in power. You see, it's not enough that Jesus is loving. 
It's not enough that Jesus is a good guy, a bro you want to hang out with on the weekend, right? It's not enough. That's not good enough. Jesus has to be powerful enough to bring that love, to bring that mercy, to bring that compassion, to bring forgiveness of sins, not only to you and your life, but to everyone who calls upon his name, every race and tribe and tongue and language around the world. You see, he can be loving and compassionate, but if he doesn't have the power to back that up for all of us, and not only the sins that you committed last week, but for every sin covered, atoned by his blood, past, present, and future, then he's not a Lord worth following. He's not the one that you should claim to obey. That's not Jesus. This is Jesus. Has God given you eyes of faith to see him? His greatness, his power, his authority, and that includes the greatness of his mercy and grace. If you have those eyes this morning, then cry out to him. You see, there's the jump to us. Then cry out to him in light of who he is in light of your storms. Cry out to him like those disciples in the boat. Come kneel before him like this man. Come experience like the disciples and this man. The peace he loves to give. Peace for you. No matter what you're going through. Peace. And when you do that... I want to encourage you to consider two more ideas, encouragements we find right here in this passage. First of all, take a look there. Remember that before Jesus breaks the storm, he permits the storm. Remember that before Jesus breaks the storm, he permits the storm. When he laid his head down in that stern, did he know what was coming? Absolutely he did, right? Did it unsettle him enough to keep him awake? Not at all. He slept safe in the hands of his father. He slept as God the Son in human flesh. He knew what was coming. He knew what his disciples would go go through. He knew the revelation that he had in store for them and the way he was going to use that in their lives. He knew the kind of man that he would encounter when he stepped off of that boat in Gerasa. He had an appointment, a divine appointment with that man, and he was going to keep that appointment. No storm was going to stop him from getting there to that man so that man could experience liberation, redemption. I mention these things to you as a reminder that, number one, God is in control. Number two, that his timing is not always our timing, and number three, that we should expect storms on the journey. Don't think the Christian life, and I know there's lots out there saying it, do not think the Christian life is all triumphs and roses, right? To walk in victory in Jesus, to walk as a conqueror in Jesus, does not mean that you don't experience the battles And they can be brutal. They can beat you down. But even in those great defeats, God is at work. To raise you up, to grow you, to teach you, to direct you. He is at work because the storms are part of his plan. 
As Peter would say in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 4, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal that comes upon you. He's like, why are you surprised? If it's one thing that Jesus always said and Paul said after him, and we apostles are saying to you, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Par for the course. It's in the curriculum. When you're a student of Jesus. Second, number two. Second, when we experience his peace, we should also exclaim his praise. Like this garrison man liberated from that demonic legion, we should also, brothers and sisters, friends, we should also go home to our friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for us. How he has had mercy on us. Who have you told this past week? Who did you share that with? Who did you, did you tell about how God has had mercy on you? How much he's done for you? If you didn't last week, then make a plan for it this week. Right? Share it with somebody as God provides an open door and a conversation that you have. Deliberately do by putting it in a note to somebody. Send it off as an email. Post it on social media. However you do it, let them know how much God has done for you. How he's had mercy on you. Just as God this morning has revealed Jesus to us, aren't we called to reveal Jesus to others? Yeah, that's what we've been called to do that very thing. And it should be our joy to do that. I love the man's example for us, right? As those who like this man, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a born again believer, then you like this man have also experienced redemption. You've experienced liberation, haven't you? Slavery to sin and death, you've been set free. If you have, then your first instinct like this man should be to be close to Jesus. Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to be close to you. I want to serve you faithfully. You see, that's the heart of of one who's truly a child of God. But then what comes after? The Lord's instruction, the Lord's direction. You, you go and you tell others about what God has done for you, about what I've done for you. Make it known. So what great encouragements we have here in this passage in which Jesus has been powerfully revealed to us. There is, of course, also in these passages that we've looked at this morning, there is no lack of human inability and failure, is there? The disciples against the storm. The man against the spirits. The townspeople against the man. Couldn't do anything. They couldn't do anything in any of these situations. Total inability and failure. But these reminders of our inability as human beings, as sinners, provide the backdrop for two amazing displays of power. That's what God has given us this morning. Did you know that God wants you to experience this power this morning, the power of Christ. But it begins with acknowledging your inability. You don't have everything under control. You don't understand everything, right? Everything you think that you know, God can turn that upside down just like he did right here. It begins with acknowledging that inability and then looking to the cross and empty tomb of 
Jesus. That's how we experience the power. You see, we look to the cross and empty tomb because there was a storm unlike any other that slammed into Calvary that first Good Friday. There was a storm unlike any other that pummeled Jesus and he was overcome by the waves of death and he sunk down, down, down for you, for me. But just as we see in chapter 5, there was triumph over the darkness, right? There was triumph by the light of the world over the darkness. Christ's power overcame the powers of darkness, and he rose again, triumphing over both sin and death. What power? What good news we have here? The question is, have we received it, this good news? You see, the Christian faith is distinct from every other faith and philosophy that's ever been on this earth. Why? Because every other faith and philosophy on this earth is always about what you can do, what you need to do to be right with God, to experience spiritual tranquility, enlightenment, whatever it is. The Christian faith is distinct because it's simply a message. It's a message that's proclaimed. And the question, all the question that we ask, the only question that we ask from the outset is, do you believe this? What will you do with the message? You see, it's not about what, it's not about what you've done or can do. It's about what Jesus has done. And the responsibility of every believer of every church throughout history has been to make this message known. That's it. Now, do we live in light of the message after that? Absolutely. We live with great love and gratitude to God. But the work is done. I'm not earning anything from God. You're not earning anything from God. We're not just putting a smile on God's faith every, every day or he's mm, looking down at us, frowning, and like, you better shape up, mister. He's not doing that. We are right with God. We have peace with God. All his ways are only love for his children. Why? Because he's only a loving God and he's not wrathful? Wrong. Because he's wrathful, but the wrath was poured out on Jesus for us. He bore it all. Every sin, every failure of yours and mine, past, present, and future, he bore it all. And now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It's the grace in which we stand. Isn't that good news? And so we proclaim it fully, powerfully this morning as Christ has revealed himself to us powerfully. And we can know that power because of his death and resurrection. Amen? Amen. Let's ask God to help us walk in, the light, in light of this, to receive it and walk in light of it, to clear our eyes, give us eyes of faith to see Jesus Christ in truth. Would you pray with me?